Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 153, Fiction Between Worlds. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today our guest is novelist Ruby Namdar. Ruby Namdar is an Israeli novelist who has lived in America for many years, and his novel, The Ruined House, which was published in Hebrew a number of years ago, came out last year in English translation and is now available in paperback. Although The Ruined House was written in Hebrew, it's fundamentally an American Jewish novel. Its protagonist is an American Jewish professor living in New York City who begins having strange visions, which we also discover throughout the book are connected to a story within the story of a young priest in Judea who is helping the high priest prepare for the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement. We're excited to talk with Ruby Namdar about his life, his work, and the future of Judaism. When it was published in Hebrew, The Ruined House won the Sapir Prize, which is the highest literary award in Israel, often considered analogous to the Man Booker Prize. Ruby Namdar's novel was the first and apparently last novel written by an Israeli expatriate to win the Sapir Prize, because after he won, they changed the rules so that people who don't live in Israel can't win the prize anymore. We're glad he made it in under the wire, and we're thrilled to welcome him to Judaism Unbound. Ruby Namdar, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to be able to talk with you today. Great to be here. Thank you. We thought that it would be a really interesting way to start to learn a little bit about you before we talk about your book and your work. So could you open, so could you give us a sense of your your personal background, I think it's really fascinating and, and how that comes into the process of writing the novel that you've written, The Ruined House. So um, I do indeed have some interesting things in the family background because we are from a, a city in the northeast part of, of Iran, of then Persia, a, a, where the Jewish community was forced to convert to Islam in the third, first third of the 19th century. And uh, my ancestors lived uh, four or five generations uh, under a, a pretending to be Muslim. They were like Maranos, the Maranos of Spain, only lucky enough that it happened in the 19th century and modernity saved them. And uh, basically my ancestors only could openly return to Judaism in the, in the beginning of the 20th century. 1925 was where it, it was officially allowed to be openly Jewish again. And this story was definitely some always in the background of our conversation and identity. It was not, I did not go to yeshiva. I did not study Talmud as a young kid. None of that. We were not part of the religious world. But we had, there was a strong sense of tradition and kind of a Jewish feeling in the, in the home that uh, has, has, informed very much the, my sense of identity as a writer because my work is very Jewish in many ways and it is, um, it's Jewish in unusual ways. Growing up in Israel, it, the division was pretty clear. You either were 
religious and went to a religious school and your world of reference was ancient Jewish text, or you were secular and then you knew very little to nothing about Jewish Judaism at all. And I was kind of in an in-between category, and I think I still am in many ways. So, and my work is also in Israel, for example, considered unusual because I'm between the categories. It's not religious literature, but it's certainly not secular literature. And then some 18 years ago, I came to New York with a, with a wonderful local woman with whom I'm thankfully married and I'm raising kids. And she, she lived in New York and I decided to just come and give it a chance, you know. And, uh, and it became quite a journey, uh, being an expat Hebrew author, expat Israeli author, living and working in New York in Hebrew, but not necessarily writing Israeli literature. It was almost unheard of. Maybe there was one more author that did this before. And, uh, and The Ruined House, the novel that I completed a few years ago and I've been, you know, came out in, in, in the U.S. last year, is a product of this exploration of America and, uh, and American Jewry and the city of New York and this wonderful, strange world that I didn't know much about. I want to get into a lot of the vicissitudes of translation later because it's not so simple that your novel is a novel written in Hebrew that's recently been translated into English. It's actually also a translation of the American world and the American Jewish world into Hebrew initially, you know, and so it's this fascinating multi-layers of sort of back and forth, but maybe we could give a little bit of description of the novel for our listeners who haven't heard it yet. You know, I I think it's, uh, at least just as an opening statement, I would say that there's a a fascinating interplay because there's actually a kind of a a major plot and a subplot of the novel that are kind of written in an interspersed way. The major, the the sub, it's, in some ways, it's it's, uh, maybe more helpful to talk about the subplot first, where there's this kind of uh, interspersed into the story, there's this other story of the high priest in Jerusalem going through the uh, rituals of of atonement uh, on Yom Kippur. And the main story is about kind of a high priest of the American Jewish Intellectual Society, a professor at NYU who is going through his own his own struggles. And so I, I, I would love it if you could uh, give a little bit of a better or whatever you like to give view of what this story is about for listeners who haven't heard it. Okay, so The Ruined House uh, tells the story, in, uh, 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 describes a year in the life, follows a year in the life of... Uh, Andrew Cohen, who is um, a professor at NYU, professor of comparative culture. Uh, There is no such discipline. Um, He is a very uh, successful, elegant, uh, powerful man uh, um, who seems to to have it all. You know, he's at the peak of his career. He he sits on all the right boards. He publishes in all the right places. He is... um, uh, very well connected, always on top of, of every new cultural trend. Uh, he's what we call ironically uh, happily divorced, meaning he he's not shackled to family life, but he can get his fix of domestic bliss whenever he feels like it. He dates a woman half his years, uh, and he somehow manages to keep everybody 
or he thinks he does, everybody happy and he, he remains free of real commitment. And the year that uh, this novel follows tells of, of how every um, structure in the mind and life of Andrew Cohen is begin to unravel, begin to become shaky. It starts with small details and becomes worse and worse until there's a full-blown crisis of identity. As this happens, Andrew Cohen, who is a secular Jew, some would say uh, a Jew by name alone, what a name it is, Cohen, yes. Um, (laughs) He begins to see visions, visions of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, visions of ancient ritual, of an ancient shrine that is beautiful and mysterious and alluring, but sometimes scary. And he all but collapses under the weight of these uh, of these visions, of this eruption of what really is an ancient collective memory in his small slice of individual biography. Uh, in the second, there's a second plot, and it's a good question, which is the main plot and which is the subplot, of course. Uh, although the second plot is much, takes much less space in the novel, and the subplot is not arranged on the page as a modern literary text. It is arranged on the page and, talk, and, and told as a Talmudic narrative. It is arranged as, in a way that evokes the Vilna Shas, the like, classic Talmudic page, uh, the traditional Talmudic page, which means the main story is in the center, and then it's surrounded by a halo of commentary that surrounds the main text. This story in the novel tells of, a, of an unspoken drama, conflict, but also attraction happening between two priests, the high priest and the junior priest that was uh, assigned to be his assistant. On one long uh, day of atonement, Yom Kippur, an old, long forgotten one of these days of atonement, where we follow the high priest going through the, every small detail. You know, there's a very a, a detailed and prescribed course of the ritual of the day. And uh, the, the story goes, goes with the high priest, and, but is told through the mind, the tormented mind of the accomplice, of the, of the junior priest, who is uh, watching the high priest. So these two stories correspond with each other in in uh, many ways, but few of which are uh, immediately recognized. And uh, it takes, I think, a certain study of the Talmudic pages to really understand what what the cipher, what the connection is between them. I wanted to dwell a little bit on the, the way you interspersed and, and what you chose to emphasize specifically because it, it honestly read like a dare to me. It, it read to me like you and some friends. I'm not saying this actually happened. Like it, It's like if a bunch of scholars were sitting around and we're like, hey, I bet you can't write a book where you take a bunch of blood and sacrificial rituals from a few thousand years ago and tie it into a professor's life in New York. Like, I bet you can't do that, right? And, <laughs> and it, it's like so, I, I the idea would not occur to me. So I wanted to compliment you on that, but I also wanted to name that like you chose a tricky, a tricky ritual to make, yes. Um, yes. to make 
contemporary. Um, th- there must be a reason. Like, like, what made you? What grabbed you about this Yom Kippur ritual? Which we haven't quite said it directly yet. I think people probably, many may know this. It's you know, it incorporates literal scapegoats. You know, the the, the goats that were that were killed and sacrificed. The the it, it's all sorts of sprinkling of blood and all sorts of intricate, grimy details. But also, I think the implicit statement that I received is there's real, for lack of a better term, Torah here. Um, there's there's real even for our time. So what was going on with that choice to make that the the theme? I did choose a tricky uh, element. I mean, there were much easier things. Uh, one can write a novel about a, a contemporary professor living in New York, uh, and uh, and uh, his un you know, unconscious connection to the ancient Jewish past, one could do it in a way that could be much easier. You know, you connect his soul to the one of some Rabbi Akiva, you know, a man of ideas, very cerebral. I, it's, it's too easy and it's not, um, it's almost too easy. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's almost too transparent. I was looking to create tension between, if you will, the two poles of Jewish existence and of religious existence and cultural existence in general. This this is not just about Jews, although it's a very Jewish book, but the the statement is universal. It's not, not tribal. I was looking to create a tension between the hardcore ancient collective memory and it, in its least contemporary manifestations, and between today's essence, essence of our Jewishness today, or humanity today. So for me, nothing is more exciting, alienating, strange, wonderful, misunderstood, but intriguing, than the ideas of the sacrifices and the temple. It's None of us, almost none of us, knows what to do with it. Some of the denominations just conveniently expunged it from their culture. Uh, And the rest of the denominations, you know, find all kinds of, uh, if you ask me, verbal ways to numb themselves and not really touch the fact that, that the very core of our culture and religion was cultic was about sacrifice, was about blood and fire and gold and life and death being transformed by a shamanic act of a priest, an ancient priest. Instead, we choose to focus on the humanistic, verbal uh, ideations of, of, of religion. As an artist, I am much more drawn to the ancient sensibilities of religion. I'm not looking to to write manifestos about tikkun olam. I leave this to the poor rabbis who have to appease their their congregations, (laughs) you know. Uh, Thankfully, I have the liberties of an artist. There's something in what you're saying that I'd love to jump a little forward in, in terms of where I wanted to go with this conversation, and then we'll come back to it. But there's something that uh, I've been giving talks lately about, you know, how we might go about uh, renewing Judaism. And 
I've been developing this idea that there are 10 commandments for what we should do, that five of which are about managing loss and five of which are about creating new. And it's interesting that you're hitting on two two of the managing loss ones, but maybe in a different way than I've been talking about it. You know, I've been talking about how one of the ways that we alleviate the guilt of leaving old practices behind is that we in Judaism have this commitment to studying what we no longer do. And I always give the, as an example, the sacrifices, you know, that the Talmud didn't just get rid of them. It it actually has huge amounts of pages devoted to them uh, in an environment in which we didn't do those things anymore, but we, we thought we, we should still study it. And I'm, I'm suggesting that that has to do with making us feel less guilty about leaving them behind. And the other piece that I talk about is holidays in which we sometimes reenact rituals that we no longer do. Again, like on Yom Kippur in the afternoon service where we uh, sort of reenact the temple service of Yom Kippur. Um, And so it's interesting to me to hear you talking about that specific ritual in a way that is tying it to contemporary life and contemporary ideas in ways that are more more active than, than the way that I'm presenting it. And, and I'm curious how what I'm saying lands on you. And, and you should know that on the, in terms of the five sort of positive commandments, one of them is to put artists in charge. So I think that, that actually I want to hear from you uh, as, as one of the people that I'm trying to put in charge, uh, what you make of all that. By some strange, perhaps verbal manipulation that we've been exposed to over the many centuries, Um, Most Jews are convinced that Judaism has left sacrifices behind in order to evolve into a religion of of ideas. Uh, That's a very nice idea, only it's not true. Uh, No one wanted the temple to be destroyed. No one wanted to be expelled and ousted from this state of oneness, of connectedness, of anchoredness that the temple and ritual offered. It is not what we think. The way we eat meat today is gory and terrible. Mass produce, mass murder of of animals raised in terrible conditions, fed antibiotics and hormones and and genetically modified until they're they're misshapen monsters that that we we consume without even relating them to, to... the fact that we're eating what was once a live creature. Uh, the sacrifices were a very um, a beautiful, sensitive, well-choreographed ritual that also gave eating meat and spilling blood a, a much deeper sense of meaning. And then we created a substitute that is a meager substitute, words. Words, 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 endless words without materiality, without the power of actions. Having said that, we have built a wonderful cathedral of words to replace the temple. And we have created incredibly beautiful verbal sacrifices that we call the liturgy to replace the the real sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Uh, and and th- this too is a very uh, beautiful and, uh, and uh, alluring uh, culture that th- with these two most Jews today don't, don't, inter- don't 
They don't go to that temple of words even, let alone to the original temple. So we have doubled, we have doubled exile here. We were exiled from the real thing, and now we're exiling ourselves from the verbal and ritual that took the place of the original ritual. Um, can artists, are artists the new shamans, can they be the new shamans? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Uh, but I think that artists are p- only a part of, the, of this new, if you want to create a new priestly, if you will, a group, elite, uh, that will serve the people as, as, a, as an axis of meaning and a connection to the transcendental. I think some artists would be wonderful. And I think there are other people that could do an amazing job that are not necessarily in the arts, but are very creative. You mentioned a big word for us, and I think a word that is a biggie in your book. You mentioned elite. Um, yes. And, yes. and I want to I wanna go there um, because we've talked a lot on our show about questions of elite and like the folk of Judaism. Um, we actually, I mean, th- there's a lot of questions about to the extent we want to de- like decenter elites and become more open to broader groups of people and also like what a new elite would look like what what a what new rabbis would look like all those questions we've we've looked at but in your book elite looms largely not just in the priestly class in that subplot but in the the other subplot or the main plot however we're looking at it yeah. of of New York and of Andrew Cohen who while his name does tie him to the other elite of priestly class he is part of New York's like cultural elite and it and the book makes, uh, I mean, I'm interested to hear from you there because I think that under the surface, or maybe even not that far under the surface, there are some real scathing indictments of a cultural elite that Andrew Cohen is a part of. And I'd love to just sort of get a sense broader from you of how you relate to this idea of an elite. And if we are to look at this elite that you that you describe in the book, what can we learn sort of from, from its flaws and from its potentials? Elite is a, think of it as humanity on steroids. Think of elite as, a, as the spirit of the collective, but have select few intensify it in a way that then recreates meaning for the rest. And elite is not a bad thing at all. Without elite, a society cannot survive. And there isn't one elite. Elite, to, for me, it betrays its justification to exist when the elite begins to focus on the privilege of being an elite rather than on the, on the obligation, on the commitment. The idea of elites are people who have a certain talent in a certain field and they feel the responsibility not to waste this talent and to use it for the common good. And what Andrew and his milieu in the book, which is a, it's a, it is a, it, there is a very sharp satire and, and critique. I think they betrayed their real calling, which is to be real thought leaders. And instead they became decadent, self-indulgent and privileged. I'd love to talk a little bit about the perspective that you have in writing a novel like this and, and in your work more generally. I've heard you talk about how 
you have been living within the world of the American Jewish intellectual elite, so to speak. I mean, you're living, I think, in the Upper West Side in New York and not in Brooklyn, where all the Israelis are, or Staten Island or wherever. It's, an un- it's unusual for an Israeli in America to be exposed to that world in such depth that they would be able to offer a critique of it or, or praise of it. So, yes, I mean, as far as my own story is concerned, my own journey, I definitely got uh, an unusual in into this culture uh, because I did not arrive, you know, uh, in, um, um, as you said, to to like Brooklyn to be with like a a bunch of grad students, grad school students and like emerging artists and of different, of Israelis and different, but I rather uh, arrived in a, uh, in a very different uh, world in which I, I was privileged enough to to meet and integrate in 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 a world of um, of some of the most interesting uh, powerful uh, important thinkers of our time and writers and um, and that is um, I mean it's not completely unusual but it's not necessarily the the, the regular way in which immigrants enter society. And that gave me a, um, it gave me a unique position. It, it's like an insider-outsider position, which is a very good position to be in. When, if you're a complete outsider, you don't have any, any real perspective. You just see the surface. And if you are a complete insider, it's already you're like a fish swimming in the water and not really able to discuss the nature of water because you're too steeped in it. So I was, and by the way, this is then, I, I may, if I, if I wrote another book about New York now, it would be different because I'm already too much of an insider. So I think this is an interesting connection, whether it's really following up on the same idea or it's a new idea, but I'd love to talk a little bit with you about the idea and the practice of translation because I've been a translator of late of Israeli literature, and it's interesting because in talking about being a translator, I have said to people, look, I I actually don't think you should spend the time or you need to spend the time learning Hebrew. My job as a translator is, is to make the material that's created in Hebrew available to you. Now, does that mean something is is not lost in translation? Of course, a lot is lost in translation. Um, what's gained in translation is the capacity to bring this stuff to people. It's sort of, you know, maybe 80%, uh, you know, who would otherwise have 0%. But I've also heard you talk about how important it is to you that you are writing in Hebrew and that um, you have this this deep Hebrew because, and you've talked about how for you what's really essential is that because of your writing in Hebrew and having the Hebrew, you're able to write with all of the callbacks to ancient literature and, and this sort of beautiful intermeshing of it all. And I guess I just want to add the, the last piece that I talked about earlier, which is that in some ways your novel is itself a translation because you are one of the rare books written in Hebrew that is in some fashion trying to, and I think maybe the 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 main book written in Hebrew that is successful at giving in the Hebrew language a real flavor of a part of American Jewish life that Israelis 
almost never experience. And and so there's a translation, there's an act of translation going on there as well with its attendant losses and also gains. I'm going to say two polar opposite things and mean both of them at the same time, which is a very Jewish thing to do. I'm going to say that on one hand, it is almost impossible to lead a meaningful Jewish life without the knowledge of Hebrew. And at the same time, I'm going to say that you can and you should lead a very meaningful Jewish life, even if you can't speak Hebrew. You see, when I write in Hebrew, I feel that Genesis, the amazing book of Genesis, the incredible book of Vaikra, Leviticus, the breathtaking poetry of, uh, of uh, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, I can't say this name in English, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, they're mine. I feel that they are mine. It's an unbelievable feeling. That's why I will never write fiction in another language. How could I write in a language in which my involvement is knee-high, or like in English, when I can, I can delve into the Hebrew, and, and, and every, every time I write the letter bet, it evokes Genesis, Bereshit, you know, the, the, the creation of the world. So there's something about the depth of the Hebrew that is very exciting and very inspiring. And I think that if, if the, again, a certain intellectual elite would learn Hebrew and would get themselves intimately acquainted with the Jewish canon, they will then produce modes of Judaism that are going to be exciting, inspired, and relevant. Having said that, I know that America, Jewish America, is not going to leave everything and go learn Hebrew. We know that. I mean, people are much more invested in teaching their kids uh, other languages for various reasons. And for some reason, Hebrew is not, has not become a fantasy of the American Jewish bourgeoisie, you know? Uh, I, my son is going to learn Kohelet, uh, be able to read Genesis in the, in the original Hebrew, and he will therefore have this amazing sense of identity, uh, somehow this is not... Um, so I have been living in translation for the past 18 years. I find it to be a very fertile place to live in, translation. To live in translation, think about it. It's almost a place of its own. A place of betwixt and between languages, cultures, uh, modes of being human, modes of being Jewish, modes of being everything. Um, and I find the tension between the Hebrew and the English very, very uh, inspiring. It's, it's, um, it's good for me as a writer. It does not mean that I do not freak out at times, to borrow a term from my daughters. Uh, at times I do freak out because if I feel that my Hebrew is uh, somewhat compromised, or I, I, I love to tell the story where I caught myself dreaming in English once, and I jumped out of bed covered in cold sweat, and I swore never to read in English again, <laughs> because God forbid, God forbid, I would lose my Hebrew, what's going to happen? Even now, as I'm speaking to you, I'm, I'm half translating my thoughts, and half of it comes already automatic, but I cannot take a word, any word I say, for granted. But when I give interviews in Israel, I also already am in a place where I cannot 
take any word I, I, I say for granted because I've been living outside of the Hebrew for more than 18 years. And, and yes, living in translation is a, can be a very fertile place, but it keeps you on your toes all the time. I mean, there's one dimension where I would just, I guess I'm disagreeing or challenging what you're saying a little bit, only in the sense that I think that I'm, I'm struggling to think about this in terms of the medium, an artist and the medium of his art, right? And if the medium of your art is Hebrew, then of course you need to write in Hebrew. But I'm also thinking about Leonard Cohen, who I don't believe really knew Hebrew very well, but I think whose exposure to the content of Judaism was largely through English. I think he was exposed to the pageantry of it in Hebrew through synagogue. But I think that uh, my, my guess is that what Leonard Cohen studied the Bible, he studied it in English. And and he was able, or the, or the, the prayers, and he was able to create extraordinary Jewish, in my opinion, Jewish work in English, because that was the medium of his art. And so I think that, in my mind, the act of translation is that whoever translated the Bible or the Siddur in a way that was good enough that it did allow Leonard Cohen to encounter the ideas in a powerful way. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to get at in terms of whether we can develop some more powerful exchange between Hebrew and English, between the past and the present, and between various Jews from, from different Jewishnesses, as you say, in such a way that, that it would allow them to um, produce from the other's art and, 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 and that wouldn't actually necessarily be better or worse. That would just be um, a, a continuing canon of, of new Jewish art. There should be a, that exchange. And, uh, and, and the work of Leonard Cohen is really inspiring this way. But look at you. I mean, you are translating from the Hebrew into English. And it, I think it gives you a certain a certain depth of identity that you would not have had had you been only receiving your Judaism through the translated Sidurim. I, I feel like I should I should enter in as, so I do have I, I I can I can read Hebrew and I can communicate in Hebrew, but nowhere near fluently. Um, and so it feels like a good a good moment to to, to enter in. Um, because and what's funny is when you were talking about Kohelet and Ecclesiastes, um, I've I've entered it mostly in English. I I have Hebrew there so that when I want to see what something is in Hebrew and I, I'm proficient enough that I can do that. But when I've entered into it, it is almost exclusively through the English. And there's there's many other texts where I really have only entered in through the English and, and it's still been able to speak to my soul in a deep way. And, and so I bring that up for a few reasons. One is that I sign emails to people um, very intentionally with today is Thursday as we record this. I, I, I often, as my little sign off, say Thursday Tove Lex. And I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One is to explicitly, or maybe it's implicit, it's not explicit, to implicitly argue that the Thursday part is just as Jewish as the Tove part. Um, uh -huh. 
and I, as a person who works for a Jewish organization, when I'm in touch with someone, I, I, I'm not being more Jewish just by slapping like a Hebrew on something. I actually find that's a very frequent tendency. Um, if we want to do something in a in an organizational context and have it feel Jewish, we just slap a, a Hebrew term on it. It can be misrad, meaning office, and now the office is Jewish. You can call something a sefer, and, and that's the word for book, and just like boom, that book is now Jewish. Um, I, I, I think it's very problematic that we think that, because yeah. that leads to, that actually leads, I think we'd all agree, to a lessening of the Jewish content. Like, like it, it's using the Hebrew as a, as a lazy mechanism to not delve deeply into, I mean, whatever we would want to. Um, so basically, I wanted to bring that up because I do think that it's tricky because for many people, Hebrew, they've been told it's Jewish and they've been taught that it's Jewish, but it's not in their their kishkis, to use a Yiddish word. It's not in their neshama, to use a Hebrew word. It's not in their soul, in their in their depth, in the way that it would be for an Israeli or for, yes. or for Americans that really are familiar with it from prayers or from otherwise. And so I think that it's worth... It's worth considering whether we're in an era or we've or we've always been in eras where where all these languages can be um, can be Jewish. I think that, uh, of course, yes. And of course, that we, as I said, I don't believe that America is going to become Hebrew. It's not, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. We're not we're not fools. I think that for most Jews, it is uh, if they will know Hebrew, it's going to be you know Hebrew school Hebrew, uh, which is a very nice and and not very deep, and you are not going to learn, you know, uh, be able to read uh, uh, the the wisdom books of Shlomo Melech, uh, uh, Kohelet, and uh, you know Proverbs in in Hebrew. You're going to read uh, you know Misrat. Uh, You're going to read Office or Marpeah, Infirmary. But these, these are actually important, you know, these small hinges on which you, you hang your identity are important. Even if you call the, the nurse's uh, office uh, Marpea, or Marp, as they called it in Camp Yavne, which was very cute, I thought, um, uh, was um, in itself something, a certain hinge. Uh, identity is a big thing. It needs a lot of clasps to hang it on. Part of it is the sense of ownership. When you read a biblical text in English, it does not necessarily feel Jewish to you. And if it is to you, Lex, because maybe you were raised somewhat observant or in a certain Jewish world that told you these texts are yours. But think of our very brilliant secular friends who were not raised in, in any in any religious Jewish context, if they will read the words of the wise, disillusioned king, Kohelet, they would think of it as like an English prose. They would think of it as the King James Version. Think about it. King James translating King Kohelet. It's incredible, the game of translation here. They would not think of it as a building block of their Jewish identity. Now, before we get too smug here, the Israelis, I would say that many Israelis too have been exiled from this. So it's not, and this is something I like to, to, to say to Israelis, and it irritates them, but that's fine, uh, that they too have, have fallen out of touch with their cultural canons and cultural roots. 
my my friends in in Tel Aviv, the the secular is the secular Israeli cultural elite of Tel Aviv. Some of them would know Kohelet, and some of them would not. Kohelet Mele, uh, would they know a Talmudic passage? Could they decipher a Talmudic page? Not much more than than your average American Jew. So when I did these Talmudic pages in my novel, in order to provoke, in order to create a friction, I did it in Hebrew too, knowing that many of my Hebrew readers are going to be freaked out, taken aback, misunderstand, not understand. What do I want from them? What is this? What does he want? Is it a religious book? We don't do religion. What do you want? The same instinct, maybe even worse. So this is not just about America. This is about contemporary Judaism and how it can be tied to the past and how it could be translated to the future. Well, maybe that opens up. I think this is probably the last question that we have time for, but I'm, I'm interested in, in further getting your thoughts on the work that needs to be done in the creation of a culture. And in particular, you know, following up on what you're saying about Israelis, I've often said that I thought that the early years of, of the creation of Israel was very successful in creating a secular version of the language and rather successful in looking at the land in a secular way. That's become problematic of late, but in the early years, that it was uh, there was a secular understanding of the the Jewish connection to the land of Israel. Um, there was not as much work done on secularizing the religion, you know, on, on secularizing the culture, of finding ways to take all of this material. And again, maybe we're talking about a version of translation because we're talking about a lot of material that they perceived to be religious in nature because it talked about God a lot, and they didn't find a way to turn it into the 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 deep culture that Israel was going to be built on. And versions of that are also true about the early years of American Judaism. And And so I think what we're all struggling with is... How do we build the Jewish culture that we need for our time, knowing that it should be very much built upon the foundation of that ancient culture, but yet having kind of skipped a lot of steps recently and not knowing quite how to go back to where we need to go? So I'm curious how, how you think about the kind of creativity that we need in the, in the period that we're going through now and that we will be in the near future. You know, Daniel, I really liked that slip of the tongue you had. You said secular religion. You actually meant that. And that's perhaps what we need. Secular religion sounds like an oxymoron, but it is not. It is an interesting idea, like many oxymorons. It is an invitation to think about dichotomies and about the essences. There will be some culture. So some would say, okay, there's Israeli culture and there's American culture. The Jews are very happy being Israelis. The Jews are very happy to be Americans. Why do you need this whole Jewish business? It's over, Gamalmu. Clearly it's not. How does one, and I love this emphasis that you put on translation, how does one translate religion to someone who's not necessarily a God believer or who might even be a God believer but does not want to connect that belief to any theology or to make, to have this belief dictate anything in their life. 
wants to remain Jewish, but does not want to be a, a orthodox or to be bound to a lot of ancient religious rules. It is possible. It is possible because we're a culture that understands the power of absurd and that oxymorons are never real oxymorons. But if you're going to stick to like flat 19th century style secularism, then no, then you have replaced it with a new religion, secularism. The Jews are not going to part with their Jewish Judaism or even Jewishness. I want to keep this term, this seem seemingly oxymoronic term, a secular religion. I want us to keep it in the air and think about it a little and, and throw it to the people who listen. This slip of the tongue might have contained the cipher to, to what we're looking for. Yeah, who knows? I think that that could be could be a big discovery. And the optimistic thing is Dan and I both have plenty of slips of the tongue on the show. So that means that we'll be uh, looking at many more discoveries in the future. So uh, that's a great note to end on. Thank you, Ruby Namdar, for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you both. And a big thanks, of course, to all of you out there listening. I love that this episode closed with our guest, Ruby Namdar, calling out to all of you and seeing what your thoughts were or are on this on this question of secular religion. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but we'd really love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your concerns about anything that we talked about in this episode or our others. So we close out our episodes by saying just that, and there's a variety of ways for you to be in touch with us. The first is to head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our Twitter feed at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We also would love to request that if you're able to, you can support us with a financial donation, uh, even just a dollar for every episode you listen to. So a few dollars a month or, you know, $50 a year goes a huge, huge distance towards making this podcast a reality. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or a one-time gift basis at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.